I'm not doing the hard work that our clients are doing. They are on the front lines. They are fighting the fight. I just want to make sure that we are supporting them, making their lives easier, and certainly not getting in their way. And so that's my focus in terms of how I can make a positive impact and make sure that we have serious change in our country, especially in these more conservative states where I grew up, where they're passing terrible laws that are harming Americans, American children. It's awful. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Chelsea Peterson Thompson, who is general manager at NGP Van, the democratic and progressive political software company now part of Bonterra. I was glad to have the chance to hear Chelsea's story, how she grew up in democratic politics on the field side in South Dakota and Nevada for leaders like Tom Daschle, Tim Johnson, and Hillary Clinton, and then served as campaign manager in a number of contests. And how she joined NGP Van on the sales side, rose to VP of sales, and now heads up the political organization. With all the insider political tech attention to NGP Van's growth, acquisitions, layoffs, the launch of their nonprofit side, Every Action, and their combination with other firms and purchased by the private equity firm Apex, you'll want to get to know Chelsea and her stated intentions to make the company more transparent and worthy of its place as part of the critical infrastructure for the party and the progressive movement. I asked her for her takes on what she sees as a few misconceptions about the company that so many progressive organizations depend upon. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Chelsea at NGP Van. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Chelsea, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, of course. My name is Chelsea Peterson Thompson. I am the general manager of NGP Van. I got started in politics in 2002 when Senator Tim Johnson was running for re-election in South Dakota, my home state. Born and raised there, got to start working with the South Dakota crew in 2002, 2004, And then really went from there. I worked all over the country in a bunch of different races and eventually came to NGP Van. Now I live in Maryland with my wife and our two sons and a very large dog that I hope you and the listeners don't hear on this podcast. (laughs) And your wife was also a NGP employee, is that right? Correct. She is, is still with the company. She heads up our nonprofit sales team across Monterra, but she got started as an NGP user 
back in the day at Juki Classic and worked in compliance before she came to the company. It's so nice to hear something called classic. That sort of dates me, I think, as much <laughs> as anything else. <laughs> dates us too. Dates us too. <laughs> South Dakota is a really interesting political place to come from. Senator Tom Daschle, who was out there back then, was just a really admirable Senate majority leader, I thought, and Tim Johnson as well as another senator. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to get into politics there and what that state is like politically then. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a household that talked about politics all of the time. We always had the news on. We were always talking about current events. My mom was a registered Democrat. My dad was a registered Republican, but hadn't voted for Republicans in a very, very long time. He was sort of committed to the old version of the Republican Party, and had stopped voting for them sometime in the 80s. But we always had healthy debates, and my mom volunteered on the Clinton-Gore campaign. I remember when Bill and Hillary came to a rally when I was just a little kid, and that sort of really sparked my involvement and interest in politics. I remember listening to Hillary speak before Bill came on stage and her talking about the importance of, of health care for, for kids. And like, as a small kid, that was something that resonated with me in a way that a lot of the other stuff that I didn't truly understand hadn't yet clicked with me. And certainly healthcare and healthcare for children ended up being a lot more complex idea, but it was something that as a young child I could digest. And and I really stayed involved in politics ever since then. And when I got the chance when I was in high school and Tim was running for re-election against John Thune in 2001 and 2002, I started knocking on doors and making phone calls. And it was interesting because South Dakota still in a lot of ways, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed since 2016 as things have gotten more polarized, but folks would have a conversation with you and they would, you know... Be polite if they disagreed with you. We always used to joke that whatever they told you, it was likely one degree more extreme. If they said that they were undecided, that was probably the nice way of telling them they didn't support your candidate. If they said that they didn't really prefer your candidate, that really meant that they probably incredibly disliked them. It was a polite way of landing that. But South Dakota is where I really, truly learned how to organize. And in 2002, working for Tim, who is just, one of the hardest working people who really likes to stay under the radar, he just wants to get the work done and knocking as many doors as we did and that race ending up getting so close. You know, we won by 524 votes and realizing that I had talked to way more than 524 people. And you're just hooked at that point. You really get the bug. And so most of us who would work for 10 in 2002 ended up starting to work for Tom pretty much immediately after. And so I started with the Dashville campaign in 2003, and we started organizing and knocking on doors that summer. It was obviously a devastating campaign in the end. Um, Senator Dashville is just one of the most amazing men and people that you can work for, and is so inspiring. And both he and Tim just love South Dakota. And for this whole generation of young Democratic organizers, it really felt like we had a voice in what was a really conservative state. I was not out of the closet at that point, but I just knew I wasn't going to stay in South Dakota. There was something that I could just sort of sense. And I really felt like these two people represented me and my interests and my family and my younger sister and working for them was truly an honor. And 
it was a rough loss, but it didn't dissuade me um, from getting involved in politics. But that's really where I got my start was organizing in rural South Dakota, knocking on doors, driving 10 to 15 miles in between houses sometimes and talking to folks about issues that really impacted them at home. People who come in from the field side of the campaign to politics, it always shapes you. You said you learned a lot about organizing. What can you tell people who haven't had that experience that you learned from kind of being in that cauldron? So many things. You learn how to talk to people. You learn how to connect with people in one-on-one or small group, especially people who aren't exactly like you, who don't look like you, who don't have the same life experiences as you. I was a young kid. And in 2004, my like closest volunteers were a group of veterans in Aberdeen, South Dakota, who had served in various wars, who sometimes had concealed weapons on them. And that definitely wasn't who I was. But anytime I called them to show up at an event, to do a barbecue, to knock on doors, to make phone calls, to come into the office, they would show up and they would roll in with 10, 15, 20 folks deep. And I was very tight with all of them. I talked to them every day. I knew their spouses. I knew their families. And that was a really cool experience. And in most cases, I was 40 to sometimes 50 years younger than them. But anywhere I went, it was Chelsea and like the the vets for Dashiell, just like rolling into the Brown County Fair. And I think that was an important thing. I think the other thing is to think about, you really see how people digest what's out there, not just a commercial, but what they're truly thinking about, how these policies are impacting them for the better or worse, or what changes they need or they feel like they need and what they truly care about. And getting to know if somebody's undecided, why they are truly undecided. And again, it takes a while. I knew my 11 precincts so well that when Tom was there, I could tell him the name, how many kids they had, what issues they were concerned about, old school organizing, like really getting to know the voters in South Dakota and, you know, the place where I was from. And then I think the other piece of it is just, it teaches you how to build a plan and to really think about, okay, I have these 11 precincts. These are how many registered voters that are in these precincts. And this is like how many votes I need to win or to consider to like be a victory here. And really think strategically about how you're spending those resources, how you're recruiting volunteers and how you're getting folks out there talking to as many people as possible and in a real way and making sure that they're aware of how important the election is. And so it gave me tools that I use on a daily basis and I don't even recognize until I... Okay, I definitely picked that up <laughs> on the door because, you know, when you're 18 years old and you're knocking on a stranger's door and you're talking to them about politics, you have to be prepared for that conversation in whatever direction it goes. Yeah, I've done enough canvassing to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Tell me quickly what happened with you in the 2006 cycle. So after Senator Dashiell lost his election in in 2004, I stayed very close to my RFD, my regional field director. That was up in Region 5, as we were called, in northeastern South Dakota. And he went to manage a congressional campaign in the former Nevada 2nd for Jill Derby. She was on the board of regents in Nevada, and she was running in a district that had never been won. And it's been redistricted since then, but will never be won in that form by a Democrat. 
and went out there to work um, for Jill and for or for my friend David. And so, in a lot of ways, it was very similar because the Nevada Second Congressional District was pretty much every single part of Nevada except for Las Vegas, but it included a few streets in North Las Vegas. So it's just insanely huge. And so there was a lot of similarities in terms of the turf, the overall distribution, and it was very conservative. So it immediately felt like home to me in a lot of ways. Nevada voters are uniquely independent. Even the Republicans in that state are very, and again, the world has changed quite a bit since 2006, but very fair choice, very, you know, I don't want any unnecessary laws that impact me or my family. They like lots of space. (laughs) <laughs> don't like districting <laughs> and really enjoyed my time out there. And eventually, you know, I fell in love with that state and consider it a second home to this day. We came close, but we didn't make it. Um, and then, you know, things were getting ready for the 2008 cycle. And so I decided to stay. We intersected on the Hillary campaign to some degree in 2007, eight. What was your role there? So I was a regional field director in Northern Nevada. Nevada had been moved earlier in the schedule. And growing up in South Dakota, I just assumed I would work in the Iowa caucuses someday. I watched it on C-SPAN during the Daffodil campaign in 2004. We all were betting on the Iowa caucus. We would go down there to the JJ and things like that. But when talking to folks, they everybody's response was you are one of the only people that is organized in northern nevada you would be crazy to go to iowa where everyone's going you should stay here and so ended up working with robbie and marlon in northern nevada and got started in early 2007 and you know just going back to seeing hillary in south Carolina when i was a young kid I knew that I was going to work for her. There was just no question. My campaign manager on the Derby campaign, David, went to go work as Obama's state director in Nevada. And pretty much all of the Dashwood crew was working for Obama. They made a couple of attempts to get me to join the family. But I was like, I'm all in with Hillary, like ride or die. I was just thrilled to go and work there. And it was also wild because Nevada had never gotten that national attention. It's never gotten so many candidate visits. And the caucus system was so new at scale. And it was a lot of education. There was so many people who had never caucused before and teaching people caucus math. It was just as much education as it was, you know, persuading people to come on board with the campaign. And then uh, next for you, if I understand right, is some party work in South Dakota and nationally. What was that? Yeah, so after the primaries ended, I guess technically at the convention when Hillary came out on the floor, knowing the direction I was heading in and that we were starting to wind the campaign down, wanted to go home to South Dakota because Tim Johnson was up for re-election in 2008. And previously, a few years before that, he had an ABM a medical incident with Tim. He was up for re-election. There was lots of attacks on him that he wasn't capable to fit office, you know, during his recovery, which I knew Tim, I knew his family. I knew that he was up to it and I wanted to go home and make sure that we kept him. I thought it was so important, especially that we no longer had Tom in office. Things were definitely turning even more conservative than they had been when I was growing up. 
And so I went back to South Dakota. I worked for the party on the coordinated campaign, and I spent most of my time organizing on South Dakota's Native American reservations. If you talk about true organizing, that was very much like voters on note cards, organizing them by hand to go and talk to people. I loved every piece of it. It truly felt that sort of organizer soul and have so many great friends on the reservation. I was so proud of the work that we did out there and very happy that Senator Johnson was able to win re-election that cycle. But we also were able to do a lot of cool things. Early voting on the reservations, they were held in adjacent counties and county seats. So for voters in Pine Ridge, they would have to drive an hour, hour and a half each way to just go early vote in person. And so we worked with a lot of the, the local counties to get early vote locations in Pine Ridge and other areas. So folks had the opportunity that all the other counties in South Dakota were able to have, but the, the folks on the reservation didn't have it. So I'm really proud of that work and it was really exciting. And then of course the reservation folks were so excited about Barack Obama. And so there was just a lot of excitement. Like I would say Barack Obama was just under the level of popularity of Tim Johnson out on the <laughs> reservation <laughs> because everyone loves Tim. It was really exciting to to see the investment by all the campaigns, but just the turnout and the folks that you know, folks got an additional opportunity. It wasn't enough. Like we should have had more early voting, but we were able to get some out there, which I think was a huge step. You spent some time at the D trip, right? Yes, I did. I was in the infamous 2010 cycle. <laughs> oh, God. You're not necessarily winning everything you're taking swings at. No, <laughs> no. And I think it's important. You know, you want a lot more, I think, in some in some ways when you lose. But it it was a heartbreaking cycle. 2010 obviously was, was pretty awful. I was the Midwest Regional Field Director and started out in D.C., but then that cycle, we actually put all of the regional field directors in their turf so they could get to their races more quickly. So I ended up spending most of the cycle in Columbus, Ohio, so I could get to all of my Ohio, Michigan, Illinois races in sort of real time, which was nice to be back in the Midwest, but they were definitely all uphill battles. It was a brutal cycle, and those were incredibly brutal districts. And it, it ended up being, as everyone knows, a very, very rough cycle in terms of like where we ended up with the house. Sometimes you can't beat the tide, can you? There are times when we've done it. 2002 was a, a great midterm for the Bush administration, but we prevailed in South Dakota. In 2006, there were some major wins. I just wasn't a part of one of the, the winning house districts, but I, I've always felt very comfortable in those conservative or more red districts because that's where I grew up. I grew up in a place where I definitely wasn't the majority in terms of being a, a, a progressive. I ended up in a lot of districts <laughs> that we didn't win. You became a campaign manager for a while, right? Yeah. I've never run a race. What's it like? Did you like it? I did. It, it's funny because I do think that there are some roles on campaigns that people think or assume are more glamorous than others. And campaign manager is not one of them because you are responsible for the outcome of the race, managing the candidate, putting together the strategy. But you are also responsible for making sure that the office bathroom has toilet paper and the printer has toner. So <laughs> it's a we all do windows, we all do floors type role. I enjoyed it. It's something that I had always wanted to do. It's hard work. 
I was incredibly surprised that I ended up managing campaigns in California. So after 2010 and being in DC and the results coming out of, of that cycle, basically just wanted to get as far away from DC as possible and just take a beat. And California was one of those places where I would talk to anybody that I knew, consultants that I knew, people at the committees. And I would say, hey, I'm thinking about going and working in California. Do you know anyone out there that I should meet with? And most people at the D trip or the DNC or whatever were like, not really. Like, I don't have a lot of great connections out there. And that made it more interesting to me that I could sort of go and develop my own thing and hopefully a place where I would be in a more progressive with a chance to win district, um, which ended up not being true because what I ended up doing is is getting into ranked choice voting and top two primaries and things like that. Um, but it is it was a different world. It was it was very different, and I didn't know anybody when I moved out there. And so it was really having to build connections and realizing that California is a completely different world outside of DC. Campaign managers and management position, did you take from that things that you use today in in a management position that you have? Yeah, definitely from that. But I learned, I think, the most on how not to manage. When I first managed in 2006, I had three organizers who reported to me. All of them were older than me. All of them were men. All of them had graduated from college, whereas I was doing the, we sort of joke, spring semester college track where you'd work on a campaign and then you'd go back for a spring semester and then you'd go back out on the campaign. And I was really insecure about managing these three young men who graduated from Ivy League schools, and I was this organizer from South Dakota, and really thought that a way to manage was to just like puff up my chest and be really tough. And it was not super successful in terms of building a great relationship with your team. So I learned a lot from what not to do, from the mistakes that I made the first time that I managed, and then managing organizers over the years, especially in really hard races. I built up a lot of those skills and certainly made mistakes along the way and still make mistakes as everyone does. But being a campaign manager, you're managing up and down and sort of across. So you're building partnerships in the community and talking to donors, talking to volunteers, talking to supporters, but then you're also managing the candidate and what the candidates needs and wants are and what they think the strategy should be. You're managing those consultant relationships and then you also have this team that's looking to you for direction. And it's a cross-functional position. So you've got your, your field director and your, your organizers, and you've got your finance director. And there's a natural tension between like the resources and time between those two pieces of the campaign. And then you've got to think about the candidate's time for media and events and, and all of those types of things. So it was sort of a mini running your own business when you have to think about priorities, but never enough resources and never enough time. You got a hard deadline, that election date is not moving. And so you have to be as efficient as possible to try to you know, feed each one of those functions and all of those folks that are looking for time or energy or, or money in terms of like the campaign budget. It was a, a challenging but rewarding position. And I'm really glad that I, I did that before I moved on outside of campaign space. 
in these campaigns that you've been part of to this point in the conversation, were you using NGP and Van tools? Were you familiar with them? So I got my first Boat Builder login in 2006 in Nevada. And so I was a Van user long before I came to NGP Van. I got my first classic login in 2011. It's to the NGP side? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't used NGP previously because I was very much on the field side. and Nobody was interested in giving me or any other organizer access to it. I was a user first. And one of the reasons that I actually approached the company about working for NGP Van was I got to California and the first campaign that I started on there wasn't using either. And it had been my experience since 2006, I'd used Van. So I got there and just expected my Van login. And they had a Microsoft Access database of all of registered voters in San Francisco. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and so I, I convinced the candidate that we needed to switch to both Van and to NGP, which he agreed to. And I ended up doing that with my next campaign as well. That is when I realized not everybody just used NGP and Van. And I really was excited about an opportunity to go and work for the company and sort of persuaded them to hire me. Tell me more about that. Who did you go to and what were what were the circumstances around that? I don't know that story. So I had started asking around. I had known some of the folks there, like obviously working with the salespeople and the support people who had helped me during those campaigns and then just on previous iterations of campaigns and eventually got connected to Michelle Stevenson and said basically, hey, do you know not everybody uses NGP and Van down here? And of course, Michelle and Stu were very well aware that the California market was was not saturated with NGP and Van users. And so started having conversations with Michelle in 2012 and started talking to Stu then. And then I organized my way into the job. I reached out to a lot of my friends across the space. And I was like, hey, would you do me a favor? Will you give Stu a call? Will you give Michelle a call? Will you write them an email? <laughs> and at one point I got on the phone with Stu and he said, I'm pretty sure Michelle is hiding under her desk because so many people are calling and emailing her about you. And I was like, well, you know, that's, that's what organizers do. <laughs> they turn people out. And so eventually I got hired to work remotely in California before that was fully a thing. And my primary focus was to sell to California races up and down the ballot. Have you ever heard of anyone else organizing themselves into a job that way? How would you respond if you had a candidate who was like, had seven people call on their behalf? Is that a positive thing to do? I'm an organizer. And <laughs> if I see somebody organizing, I just hope I can hire them before somebody else does. Like that to me is, is somebody who's hungry and is willing to put in the work to get the job, which means they're going to show up when they have the job. So I would, I would definitely hire them. It's a good sign for someone who wants to go into sales that they're willing to put that forward momentum and energy into something. What was it like selling this product for a number of years? It was, and still is, a lot of fun. The last thing I sold before... NGP and Van, if you don't include candidates, was Girl Scout cookies. It wasn't as if this was always the pathway that I was on, but when you really think about it, organizing or running a campaign, you are selling your candidate 
all of the time, day in and day out to folks. And you know everything about your candidate and their positions, and that's what you're talking about. That's what you're passionate about. That's why you get up every day. And you have goals. So when I made the transition into sales, I was selling and talking about a product that I truly, truly believed in. And I still do. Like I am a band nerd at heart. Apologies to you and Lou, but like that was my first love in terms of just like the band product was something that every organizer gets a little bit of high up. And I was excited to talk about it in a place where people weren't using it and didn't know about it and didn't know Vote Builder and those types of things. And then you have goals. And so when you're an organizer, you have a vote goal, you have recruitment goals, you have number of supporters you need to recruit every single day. When I was on the Dashiell campaign, I knew I had to get identified 27 new Dashiell supporters every single day. And that was a number that I woke up thinking about. I went to bed thinking about. And when you switch over into sales and you're like, okay, this is my quarterly number. This is my annual number. And then your organizer brain starts breaking it down into this is my monthly goal. This is my weekly goal. This is my daily goal. This is my territory. I need to know everything about why is LA different from San Francisco? Why is San Francisco different from Oakland? And like, what type of campaigns do people run? I loved it. There's such a close relationship between the two. And over the years, I mostly hire folks that come directly from campaigns. It's not just organizers. I, I hire people who run national digital programs, who've run fundraising programs, but I hire practitioners and users of the platform and campaign people, no matter what part of the campaign side you serve on, you have some sort of number that you are working towards every day. And once that clicks with an organizer or fundraiser or digital director, they're just like off to the races. And that's pretty cool to watch. You somehow worked your way to be senior vice president of sales. What do you think was the knack that you had that led you to move up inside the company? I think it was a combination of all of those things that I learned being an organizer, which is coaching people, coaching people on sales, coaching people on how to think about developing a sales plan and executing on it. I had started working with some of our larger clients and our national clients and the committees over the course of years. I started doing some of our international stuff as well. I was very focused on hitting goals, but also wanted to bring more people into the company and grow them in their careers. It's also, at some point, you want to stop living on an air mattress and (laughs) moving around and not missing birthdays and family events and stuff like that. And NGP Van was such a great place for folks who are like, okay, I spent 10 years on the road. And I would like to have a job in December and see what that's like and like to have healthcare and all of those great things or to have healthcare and actually have time to go to the doctor or to go to the dentist. And I really like being able to bring people in and say, you can still touch all of the things that we love and make sure that you are closely connected to these tools that you love and work with all of these people in this ecosystem. That's so great. And such a fun place to work, but you can have a stable job that allows you to take vacation. You still get the highs of of winning. One of the greatest things about working with NGP Van is that when something is happening in the world, 
we're all talking about it. You know, if there's a congressional hearing, you're walking through the office, everybody's got the hearing up on one screen. If there's an election, everybody's focused on the election. Every election night on primaries, it really is a community. And to bring people into that and to coach them, I think was one of the reasons that I was really successful. And I also was very aware of the importance of building a team that could work together and making sure that everybody was heading in the right direction. And I'm really proud of the teams that we've put together over the years. And they've been incredibly successful. And I stay in contact with the ones that are no longer here. And they're just like such a great group of people. During the time that you've been at the company, just a ton of changes, a ton of growth. The company made a lot of acquisitions of other companies in the space, mostly in the nonprofit space. It kind of launched the nonprofit arm, every action, ramped up the selling around that quite a bit. People in leadership left over time, including Amanda and Stu and John Lee. How did the company change in your view internally? Does it feel a whole lot different with a different kind of ownership and management? Does it feel a lot the same? What's the cultural change that you've experienced over that time? Yeah, I mean, I've been with the company for over 10 years now. So I always say the only constant is change because when I started, we were transitioning from NGP Classic to NGP 7. And then we started moving to people to NGP 8. And we're, there's been various updates to the product. The team certainly has grown. So when I started, there were, I think, seven salespeople reporting into Michelle Stevenson. Now, the sales organization is significantly larger. Just the, for the NGP van side of it, it's 15 folks. So it has changed in terms of scale. I do think one of the things that I and Lou and other folks at the company try to do is really keep some of those unique things that made us different over the years and keep some of the fun company culture. Roles have changed. Faces have changed. We've kept a solid crew of people who have been around for a long time and have that institutional knowledge. But we're also been able to bring in new folks who come from other spaces or have been on the ground more recently and are able to bring in new ideas, which is also really exciting, but able to keep fun things like company happy hours. And you walk into Lou's office, it's just stacked full of lefties getting ready for the next event. Like there's some things that aren't going to change anytime soon. We have a larger office, a nicer office. I liked the bullpen back in, back in the old bullpen, but we've, we've outgrown that significantly. In terms of, of company culture, one of the things that has changed more than anything has less to do with the folks who have left, but really the pandemic, which is we all used to be in the office all the time and hang around after work. We would see each other on the weekends. We would see each other at night. We'd go grab dinner. We'd go grab drinks. and that has really changed. Like even the people that were in DC when the pandemic was started, a lot of them have left. And so it's a mostly remote or hybrid environment. And I do think that that has been hard in terms of the change of the company culture. For me, one of the times that it resonated the most was during the election of 2020, which was the first election night that I hadn't spent 
in one of our offices with like my friends, you know, in 2016, I was in HFA headquarters. So I wasn't in the office at night, but I came home the next day and went straight into the office to see everybody. It was weird, but this, this past election night for the midterms, we were able to like bring everybody back into the office and do like an old NGP man party. And that felt awesome to like be able to be together as a team on election night. I don't think anybody realized how much we would all miss that and being on zoom. I mean, it was a weird time. It was a weird election, but being on zoom was not the same, especially in such an incredibly stressful election and like volatile national temperature. After the acquisition bundling of multiple companies by Apex, the kind of corporate name became Bonterra. And it's right around that time I interviewed Amanda, who, if I understand right, in charge of NGP Van at that time. But she told me she was on her way out. And you've sort of ascended to most of that role. What is your job right now? What is your responsibility? I do often joke and say things and stuff, but my job is to work cross-functionally across all of the teams who support our clients and our platforms to make sure that we are driving this platform to be the ones that our clients need to drive the outcomes to truly make a difference and to win elections. And so in terms of my day-to-day, it's really working internally and externally with our clients, with our team, what do folks need? What's evolving in the ecosystem? How can we reinforce our core platform that so many organizations depend upon for everything? How can we open it up so folks can better integrate with it, that we can innovate? If somebody's building something new, how can we integrate? How can we make our clients' experience more easy or easier to get data in and out of the system? How can we also evolve with the ecosystem? You know, We want to make sure that we're hearing from our clients. And I spent a lot of time talking to them in person or on Zoom or whatever the case is, and getting to know what they're thinking about. Certainly, we're fully in the swing of 2024 at this point, but anticipating the things that we need that will make a difference need to be built now and released before we even get into 2024. That's like not a super specific because every day looks a little bit different. But it really is hearing the voice of the client and working with our internal teams to make sure that we are actually focused on the right things and we're building the right things that the folks need. And it's also opening ourselves up. So one of the things that I talk to Amanda a lot about when I transitioned to this role and I talk to this team a lot about is that over the years, we haven't always been great about saying, this is what we're doing. Like, this is our roadmap. These are our plans. And then once we do build something, we also haven't been great about going back and saying, hey, remember this thing we said we built? We've delivered it. We're just sort of keeping our you know head down, doing the work and, and grinding it out. And I want to be transparent with folks in the ecosystem and with our partners. And I also want a gut check, right? Is this, is this what you need in a critical election year? And of course, every election year is critical, but... I think that that is one of my focuses heading into this role and thinking about what sort of culture I want to build around NGP Van. And it really is being more transparent and open with our partners and hearing from them and their voice and what's working and what's not. Things have changed a lot since the pandemic and programs have changed and the way that we approach things have changed. 
And I want to make sure that we are focused on the right things because in the end, I came to this company with the purpose of electing Democrats and that hasn't changed for me. And so I'm not interested in building something that people won't use or isn't helpful or actually like creates more problems. I want to help our clients who are doing the hard work on the ground drive better outcomes. How do you think the product is holding up over time? Um, And what do you want to improve about it as you go forward? I think it's holding up in terms of stability, scalability, security very well. I'm obviously biased because I just, it's just one of those things when anytime I log into it, I get a little bit of joy to log in. The things that I want to improve are really not bells and whistles. The things that we're focused on improving are the core platform. And so making it easier to manage addresses, manage duplicates, view the information on a contact record that you need to segment in the way that you want to segment, to manage duplicates better. The not super sexy stuff to a lot of folks, but I think those are the things that our clients want. They voice that that is important to them. They want UI workflows to be easier and more intuitive. And I think that those things are where my focus is right now. One of the things that we want to do is better serve down-ballot candidates. And it is hard to run for office. It is hard to raise money. It is hard to convince people to vote for you. We don't want your CRM to be another on your list of hard things when a lot of these down-ballot candidates have a full-time job, they have a family, they're in NGP or in band at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. They're not you know, looking for help during business hours and able to call the support helpline. So we want to have documentation and workflows and, and videos that help them manage the database easier and to build those workflows into the product. So you don't think about your CRM, you're thinking about raising money and you're thinking about persuading voters to vote for you. And you can really focus on those things because we need to build our bench back up. And I think that lowering the barrier of entry and both in terms of cost and usability of the platform is a major focus for us as a company and for me personally. When I was running the company back in its infancy, I guess now, on the NGP side, on the fundraising and compliance side, I really felt like our advantage was in the support and service that we provided. And that was pretty evident in the kind of surveys that we did back in the day and the amount of people that recommended it from one campaign to another. How are you doing on service these days? I'll be honest, and and I've talked about this a lot with our our clients and our partners in the space. 2022 was was a rough year, especially in that first six months in terms of the support that we were providing. It was not up to the standards of the typical NGP band support levels. And through a lot of tough conversations, which I deeply appreciate with our partners across the space we were able to really dig in and figure out where the problem was. And so we were able to turn it around heading into the midterms and get the support response times back into the spot that they needed to be. It's something that we're monitoring on a weekly basis now heading into 24 and haven't stopped since these issues started popping up last summer. It was an interesting time to try to hire additional support folks We had opened up additional roles last summer and just couldn't find enough people to fill them. 
And one of the things that we saw coming out of 2020 is that there were a lot of folks, particularly organizers, who had a very different organizing experience in 2020. Organizing from your parents' basement, not in a campaign office where you can feel the highs of winning together or the lows of a bad event together really changes people's perception. And a lot of those folks didn't come back for the midterms. And so when we were trying to hire these roles, it was difficult. And so it did take us longer to sort of fix things because of that. But we were able to have some folks internally who had previously been on the support team who have tremendous amount of knowledge, help jump in and train and coach and mentor some of the newer support folks who hadn't had as much experience. So we were able to get in a better spot heading into those last few weeks of the election and are continuing to grow the support team and making sure that our clients are able to get what they need on a day-to-day basis. But you know, there's, it's such an important piece of what we do that it is a topic of conversation every single day, making sure that we're back to where we need to get to. You wrote a blog post about we're in this for the long haul. It was kind of a notable blog post from a leader in a company. What caused you to write that and what were you trying to say? It's no secret that people in the ecosystem have been nervous. There's been lots of questions. I've certainly heard a lot of rumors some a little bit crazier than others. I've heard from people who just want reassurance, making sure that this thing that they run their entire program for a decade or two decades have been inside this platform. And it is very critical to their infrastructure and the infrastructure of so many different organizations across the space. I wanted to reassure folks that this platform and this brand isn't going anywhere. I try to have these conversations individually. It's like I feel people have like my cell phone number and text me if they hear something or call me and just say, hey, I heard this. Is this true or not true? But I wanted to do it at a larger scale to say, we're not going anywhere. I don't want to say that anybody is a single point of failure or I'm always going to be here or whoever you work with is always going to be here. But NGP Van is not going anywhere. This platform is not going anywhere. It was important to say In some cases, I do think that it caused more questions in terms of why is she posting this now, which wasn't the intent. The intent was to say, like, I fully stand behind this brand and and this platform isn't going anywhere. And I recognize how critical it is in terms of infrastructure to the ecosystem and want to let you know that Bonterra is invested in this platform and in this brand. What kind of response did you get from that? Some people saying... Is there something that you're not saying? To which I said no. (laughs) I did get some folks, both internally and externally, who thanked me for for writing it. And, you know, it was good to see it. It's always good to see us being out there and us trying to be transparent. I do think just going back to the sort of culture of transparency, because we haven't been out there as much, especially over the last few years, as I've been trying to open us back up and having more conversations sometimes it comes across as, why are they saying this now? Why are they doing this now? Why are they sending this email? But my intent really is to be transparent. And if people have questions, I'm happy to chat about it. The entire team's happy to chat about it. But I don't want people to think that our mission has changed, that the direction of the company has changed. I hopefully think that like after they see our roadmap and they see that the improvements that we made, that they think that the product has changed for the better. 
but we are still dedicated to the mission of elected Democrats and progressives up and down the ballot. That was my overarching message coming out of a better than expected midterm cycle. (laughs) Not that long after you wrote that, Bontero decided to part with something like 10% of the staff, like a lot of other tech companies. People that I talked to or read their griping were concerned that this was a sign that like the private equity owners would not be behind this, that would belie what you had said. I guess people who probably already were not maybe fans of NGP Van took it as an opportunity to take a swing. What's the truth about what the losses were in the political space and how strong is the enterprise now? I mean, my guess is that there's not another political technology enterprise on the progressive side that rivals this in scale, even after some cuts. What's the nature of the beast right now post those cuts? And just to pile another question onto that, like, do you think that the communications around that were handled very well? NGP Van was impacted less than the other legacy companies across Bonterra. I think one of the things that people might not be aware of is that during, before we came together as Bonterra and every action had done six acquisitions over the span of a couple of years, and we had never done any real like reorg or consolidation of roles during those six acquisitions. And in some cases, there was products that no longer exist or are even live, and the company has gone through many changes since then. And so this was sort of a natural step in some ways in, in, in terms of, of role consolidation and reduction in force. So I do think that that's one big thing that folks might not be thinking about. But then again, like NGP Van wasn't impacted as much as some of these legacy business units were. And we have a very strong team. And not only is Monterra strong, but NGP Van is strong. And we are focused on making sure that we are ready for all of our clients and what is going to be a massive cycle. One of the things that working with Mark Layden, our, our CEO, he says often, which is we can build fewer things, we can sell fewer things, but we cannot support our clients less. That is not an option. And so that is one of our major focuses as NGP Van, but also across Monterra, is making sure that we have the team in place that can support our clients and what they need, which includes the roadmap and it includes support and services and building better education and training programs and things like that. So I do think that it was really hard. You know, these are friends and colleagues and people that folks have known for a very long time. And you know, folks that I didn't know from other parts of the business, and it's impactful. And I think that's really hard. But I do think that we have a very strong team and a very strong company heading into a major cycle. And so I'm excited about what lies ahead, but don't want to dismiss how hard it was for folks and certainly was is still hard. This is hard work. And I, I think one of the things that is incredibly difficult is figuring out how to integrate this many companies. And we were seeing that at every action before Bonterra came together. Integration is really hard work. Things that you wouldn't even think about are incredibly difficult, like just consolidating business systems. 
And so given how much we've grown over the last 10 years that I've been here, and then the acquisitions and then eventually becoming Bonterra, we wanted to make sure that we had a team in place that allowed us to continue on the path of integration. And I think we've got a pretty awesome team. Do you think that people that were let go were treated well? I, I do. I think we offered a generous package for folks. I personally have offered recommendations and things like that and allowed them time to, to figure out what they're doing next. And, you know, certainly like the financial ability to have some time to make that decision. But that doesn't make it any easier, right? These are people. These are people who have worked really hard for somewhere that, you know, that they loved. And I don't want to diminish that in any way, shape or form. There was an article that came out in The Intercept about this, which as an outsider, but someone who used to be an insider, I read as a pretty slanted piece. But what was your sense of what was your feeling about that article and what, what it got right and got wrong? I think it did get a, a lot wrong. You probably have a very interesting perspective on this, just with all the folks that you talk to on this podcast. But one of the most frustrating things about reporting about political tech and about our ecosystem is that a lot of folks don't have the depth of knowledge of, of how things work and what is true and what's not true. I saw something the other day saying the Democratic Party sold NGP ban. And it's just like these basic things that I think most people in, in our space understand, well, that is not what's happening here. So I do think it was frustrating, just the inaccuracies of base, basic facts that are out there and available and certainly public information. That is particularly difficult. In some ways, it felt like a hit piece in terms of just coming after the company, but I'm pro-transparency. I deeply believe in the First Amendment and making sure that we have accurate information out there. And I think our partners and our clients in the space will tell you I don't shy away from hard feedback. I want to have every conversation, good, bad, and ugly, and everything in between. But I did think that it was just inaccurate in a bunch of different ways. And there was lots of leaps and assumptions made. But the critical facts that are available out there, right? Like the, I think folks know that the Democratic Party never owned a GP van. I think that's pretty well known across the space. Like there is a deeply misunderstand notion that we own the data in NGP or van, or that we sell data, which is not true and has never been true. And I think that those types of things are very frustrating for our folks internally because they're like, of course we don't do that. Of course that isn't true. But the users don't necessarily know that. And then they see something like this, which is from a, a journalist, then they it sort of adds fuel to the fire if somebody is frustrated about something else. One of the things that seems to happen every cycle that since I can remember, is there's sort of rumors of new competition for the van platform, for NGP van more generally, and then there always is new competition that's very specific in different areas of the large suite that NGP van provides. How do you see the competition out there right now? I don't take our place in the ecosystem for granted, and I never have. We serve as critical infrastructure, and we only deserve that space if we live up to it. And so I, of course, 
like being in the place that we are and, and working with so many organizations and just deeply am invested in our clients and deeply invested in this platform. But one of the things that I talk about is opening our platform up more. So not being so much of a walled garden, not making it a situation where it's hard to get your data in or hard to get your data out. I w- would love it if people use more of our, our mobile messaging or more of our digital tools or whatever the case is. But I don't believe that we should win on it's the only thing that integrates with our platform. I want to win on that it is the actual best tool that is able to drive the best outcomes for our clients. And if there's something else out there, then we need to build what we're building better. That is one of the things that is a a pretty significant shift of of where we previously have been and, and where we've thought about where we are in terms of like protecting our space in the ecosystem. I want this to be a stable, scalable platform that people want to integrate with, that we let people integrate with, and that we continue to build great tools that you can add on to your CRM. And not all of them are there yet, but we do have a lot of great things, right? Like we have hands down the best mobile canvassing application out there. And I obviously think it's probably one of the better brandings that we've ever done with Minivan, (laughs) but we're not always great at, at, at naming things, but I think we knocked it out of the park with that one. But the usage of that cycle over cycle has proven that it is something that people rely on and have moved slowly over the course of years off of paper packets and onto Minivan. And we're not there with all of our tools yet, but we're committed to investing in them. But also I am not afraid to lose when it comes to some of these pieces of functionality or a single point that people have, because I view that as a, a driving force to do better. Like this feature doesn't have the conversion rates or the testing capabilities that people need to run a successful program. And we need to build that. If we want a right to win, like the right to win is to build a better product. And so that's how I'm approaching it. And I think that's how our teams are really thinking about it in a new way. And it's not, you know, hunkering down and protecting. It's opening up and like, let's innovate. Let's work together. Let's see what our partners need. I recently had a fairly long conversation with Mike Podhorzer, who was the former political director at the AFLCO. Certain you know who he is. When I brought up Van, he said labor should really build their own and own this, or the progressive movement should be in charge of the future of this. I didn't want to take him on particularly. I just sort of quietly said, well, you know, I'm not sure if that's been the most successful place to build software. There's a lot of advantages to doing it in an enterprise like NGP Van. Do you have an opinion about that? Because it's kind of a tricky question. We all might want the, the Democratic Party to own its own tools, but it's not a software enterprise. I asked Arthur Thompson, is the current CTO at the DNC, and he was much more, I think, understanding of the benefits having come out of private enterprise himself. But how do you see that kind of notion that seems to be floating around there sometimes, especially after private equity ownership of this rather large company now? Going back to the initial thoughts and reasons for creation around Van, 
And then eventually grew into the 50 state partnership with the DNC and the birth of Vote Builder. It was because we were reinventing the wheel every cycle. And the party information, was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the party was. Yeah. And the party was at, at a state level, at a campaign level, at a national level. As people moved from state to state or from committee to committee or left politics, so much of that institutional knowledge is lost. And I think that that would be incredibly hard in a space where we do have a lot of turnover. Like we have some folks who have been at the national committees for a very long time or the AFL for a long time. But at a lot of the different levels, folks don't stay for more than one presidential cycle. Or if you're at the D trip in a cycle like 10, you're not going to stay for another one, right? Like you're taking that knowledge and you're moving on to something else. So I do think that is one of the biggest challenges that I have seen and that I would think would appear when trying to do some of this in-house is the fact that like what it looks like internally or even what the dedication is for that cycle for funding for tech. Like that has evolved cycle over cycle. There are some administrations and, and some leadership teams that are so focused on investing and building out the infrastructure. And then there are other cycles where we haven't had that as such a, a driving force. There are some leadership who want campaigns of all shapes and sizes to be running data-driven programs. And then there are some that are much more focused on media. There's just so many different iterations of what our party infrastructure looks like on both the hard and the soft side. And so I, I do think that that would be a challenge. One of the great things from my perspective, especially since Bonterra came together, is the additional resources that we've been able to invest specifically on the NGP van side and on the platform in terms of what we're thinking about, how we're tackling it, how we're working with our partners, opening these conversations back up with folks, but then also having more teams dedicated to NGP and VAN than we have previously to be able to deliver. Like our our roadmap is not small, <laughs> you know, like there's a lot to do. We know it's an important election and having those resources dedicated, but then also having the ability to work with people who come from other parts of the ecosystem. And, you know, Arthur is a fantastic partner and I really appreciate how much folks are giving us feedback on what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, what we need to fix, what they're working on and how we can work better together. And I do think that we won't be able to do that without these additional resources, which have been really critical and will be critical, especially for our 2023 roadmap. Just approximately how big is the political part of Bonterra? That is a trickier question because every action and NGP van are shared code base. So in some ways it is easy to say like this is the NGP van support team, this is the NGP van sales team, but there's not an explicit, you know, this person works on every action versus NGP, different teams sort of rotate and take different projects out on their platform. Does it seem like it's an advantage to the political side that there is a nonprofit side that also produces revenue that also allows you to have staff to do things like that? Does that work out to be a net plus to the political side? I think it does. It's something that we do ask ourselves on a very regular basis. Is this still working? Like, Are the pros still outweighing the cons? It is a question that I think we will continue to ask ourselves. It's a question that I'm 
having conversations with our partners on both sides about where are they at, where is it a benefit to them. I think one of the great things on the political side is that as we built things that are for nonprofits that can be used on the political side, we're sort of able to hand them over and say, we built membership management with nonprofits in mind, but a lot of state parties have membership programs that have existed year over year that have lived in Excel spreadsheets and things like that. And we're able to turn around and give that to them. It's also just ever since we that I started at the company, there have been people who have left the political ecosystem who want that long-term job, who want a more stable you know, social life, want to be able to go to the grocery store and the doctor. And they go work at a nonprofit and start advocating to bring in NGP or man. And you know, why can't I just use this thing that I just use in a cycle or I was on a campaign? It's true for nonprofits. It's true for campaign managers who go be a, a chief of staff in a mayoral office or something. like They want to bring these tools and these platforms that they really like. And so there are advantages on both sides, but I don't think we'll ever stop asking ourselves the questions to make sure that it remains a pro. What do you think is the biggest misconception that's out there about NGP Van that we haven't talked about in the world of NGP Van's customers and maybe also in the world of those who are not fans? Oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest misconception by users is that we own the data or that we sell the data. I think full stop. One of the biggest misconceptions that I've talked about a lot for the last year, and I certainly understand where it comes from, is that we're not invested in the political market or the political side of the product as much as we are on the nonprofit side of the product. That somehow Bonterra or every option previously was just going to sort of let this side die down so they could really truly focus on the C3, C4 market. Was that ever true? From my perspective, it was never true. I mean, it would be a horrible business decision, first and foremost, because like exactly what I was just talking about, when we are demoing every action as it is right now, I talk to my wife about this all the time and, and certainly people across our MPO teams, when they hear in a demo, wait, is this Van? Is this NGP? We know that they're going to be interested in this platform as a solution for their nonprofit. So that is very valuable in terms of like just a business decision. We're able to do more on the political side just in terms of innovation because things just move so much more quickly. Some nonprofits are more advanced, but we can build things before nonprofits even start moving in that direction. Now, that being said, we haven't ever had dedicated NGP van marketing until the last year in the way that for five, six years, there was a lot more out there about every action. So in terms of sort of air cover, I can see why people would say, like, I haven't heard anybody say anything about NGP van. It's every action, every action, every action. And I do think it was a shift. And folks also didn't know how to think about it. Like, did every action mean that NGP and van were going away? Did that mean that everybody would eventually would be on every action? How should they think about it? Not dissimilar to how should I think about NGP Van in terms of Bonterra? People just like, you know, didn't necessarily know where they should, what they should take away from the every action investment. 
that is where a lot of that comes from. It's just, it started a few years ago and it's grown as there's been more changes because folks didn't really have a way to think about it that, that made a lot of sense. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? I mean, everything. The world has changed significantly and it feels more volatile all the time. Last summer was hard, right? When Dobbs came down, it really brought me back to the place where everything felt unsafe again. And, you know, coming out of like the 2016 election, it felt like we got dropped into this very bizarre timeline. And I have two young sons and trying to explain all of these things to them and them being at home the day that Dobbs came down and I burst into tears. I was like on a Zoom meeting and they were like, what's wrong? And my wife and I are both crying. People on Zoom are crying. Like we're just very distraught and they're like, okay, the world is ending. What should we do? And I don't want them to feel like that, but certainly when we have the news on, it feels like there's so much happening all the time and we're still stuck in this post-2016 timeline. I'm still here for the reasons that I came to this company, which is to change our country for the better and to get better elected officials in at all levels, to have... South Dakota not be a place where I'm worried about my niece and nephew growing up to feeling like women and kids and people of color and LGBTQ people, um, trans kids are protected and safe. And that is what gets me up every morning, knowing that so many of these missions use us as infrastructure and we need to be stable and scalable and secure a lot of us have had a lot of sleepless nights over the last five, six, seven, eight years. It's been wild. And it feels like it, it, it's just like a constant cycle of just crazy things happening from the Trump administration. And it's hard to watch, like people going after kids. Like it is just truly horrible behavior um, by some of these people in some of these states. And a hard time to to sort of grapple with that and then to think about explaining it to the next generation of how this stuff is still happening. But you do, I think, have the good fortune, I, I'm sure you take it this way, to be in a place where what you do on the margin can help if you do it well. Is this a good job for you? Is this something that you want to do for a long time? How do you think about that? Well, my brain still works in cycles, so I think about a cycle at a time. <laughs> I think so. I, I, I really loved my last job and I found it very rewarding. But in this role, I'm able to truly work more cross-functional and I get to spend a lot more time in different parts of the company that I wasn't able to when I was in the sales role which is really exciting. I miss the platform and, and being able to think about it as much as I get to now. I do think it's a, it's a good fit. It's definitely been a wild year in terms of all of the changes that have happened, a, a massive midterm cycle heading into another presidential. I'm not doing the hard work that our clients are doing. They are on the front lines. They are fighting the fight. I just want to make sure that we are supporting them, making their lives easier, and certainly not getting in their way. And so that's my focus in terms of how I can make a positive impact and make sure that we have serious change in our country, especially in 
these more conservative states where I grew up, where they're passing terrible laws that are harming Americans, American children. It's awful. Uh, so I want to continue to do good work to, to help our clients who are out there doing the, the real, truly hard work. Chelsea, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? That is a great question. I guess what campaign impacted me the most? <laughs> what campaign did impact you the most? I, I probably should have had a, an answer before I, I said that question. But I think <laughs> but the two campaigns that formed me and who I am and the way I think about things are Dashiell in 2004 and Hillary in 2008. And the Dashiell campaign, I think, is the one that I learned a lot about leadership. And one of the things that Tom used to say that I think about all the time is that if we win, it's because of you guys. And if we lose, it's because of me. And that has stuck in my brain for almost 20 years at this point of somebody who knew how to build a team that was a family to do really hard work, knowing that we might lose in the end of the day, but we were all going to leave out on the field. And if we lost, he was taking that responsibility. But if we won, like it would be our victory. That was something that has meant so much to me over the years. And a lot of like the way I think about building a team and driving people towards a purpose and towards a shared goal. In 2008, I did leave it all on the field. You know, I worked in seven states for Hillary and she, it wasn't that I wanted to work for Hillary that cycle. She's like the only person I ever wanted to be president. In my office, I have a canned letter from some correspondent inside the White House from 93 when I wrote to her. And it's framed in my office. And in the letter, it says, keep advocating for the issues that you care about. I keep speaking up, keep doing the work. We need more people like you. Since I've been an intern and done things on the Hill, I know how that process now works. But I still have that letter in every office that I've ever worked in as sort of a driving force of like a little kid who is pretty cheeky and pretty passionate about politics and, and <laughs> healthcare for kids at age seven. but. Those campaigns, even though we lost both of them, I knew what it was like to invest in something that you truly believe in and still walk away proud. That's the way that I've approached everything ever since then. I find that pretty moving. Both of those are very hard losses for me personally, as well as many others over the political time I've lived through. But it's been really a great honor to talk to you today. I learned a lot more about you than I knew going in and I'm glad that you're in this position. I hope you meet with a lot of success. Is there anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I look forward to coming back. It's been a long time since we were alphabetically sat next to each other on the way to Puerto Rico. <laughs> it has. Well, have a great rest of the day. That was Chelsea Peterson Thompson. She's at ngpvan.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. 
Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.